Hey, Susanna. Hey, David. How's it going? I'm very well. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Been enjoying our lovely wintry temps lately. How about you? Oh, yeah. I've actually, I'm loving the snow. Uh, I'm a lifelong sledding enthusiast, which makes me the biggest winter sports dork ever. I like used to build my own sleds out of recycled cardboard and can liners and stuff, but it's been great. We got like four or five inches that really stuck and we've got a nice little sled hill on our property. So I've been loving going out with the boys and showing them how Baba, as they call me, sleds. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, we got to get you out on the uh, the ice yacht one of these Wait. days and experience grown-up sledding. Wait, ice yacht? What is that? Yeah, well, here in the Hudson Valley, there's a, a long and grand tradition of uh, going ice sailing on the Hudson River when, it's, when it freezes over and other, not so much on the Hudson River now because shipping, shipping ships, <laughs> the container ships keep the ice all broken up in a channel through the river, but on many other bodies that freeze over, people take out ice boats, which are these, they kind of look like giant wooden crosses that have little ice skates on each of the points. Then you lay that cross down on the ice and you put a mast on it and a sail and you fly across the ice on this giant ice skate, basically that's attached to a sail. And it's really fast. Yeah. It can go like 50 miles an hour. Yeah. And you are inches away from the ice because there's like almost no clearance on the little ice skate thing. It's just like very thrilling and fun and a little dangerous. Sounds like an incredibly dangerous way to have fun on the ice. Sounds cool. Awesome. And definitely a wonderful transition into this week's episode, which is all about sail freight. So yeah, should we, should we get right into it? Let's do it. Let's sail away. So yes, our very first real uh, solution season episode today, we're going to be talking about sail freight and we're going to be sort of grading the potential for sail freight to be one of the various solutions to our climate crisis. And we'll base that sort of grading on the potential impact, timing, cost, and X factor, as we've been calling it, of sail freight. But okay, first of all, Susanna, as, <laughs> as this podcast resident sailing expert, what the heck is sail freight. Well, we all know in our wonderful globalized era that things have to get shipped from all around the world and they usually come to us on big container ships. And big container ships are powered by dirty fossil fuels. And very often the dirty fossil fuels are some of the least refined and worst emitting fuel sources that you can find. And it's a huge problem. So many entrepreneurs are thinking how can we solve this problem? How can we be the technical expert, you know, the Tesla, if you will, of the shipping world? There's a lot of really cool technological advances that are happening with people that are finding alternative forms to power ships. And one of the coolest ones in this sailor's opinion (laughs) is turning container ships into giant sailboats. Because that's, of course, using the wind is how we have powered our international ships for a very long time. So maybe we should go back to that. Okay. So to sum this up, we're basically talking about the gigantic cargo ships, which currently run on fossil fuels to power them around the world as they deliver your IKEA furniture. Those 
have the potential to returning to their origin and being essentially wind powered. That's right. And there's a few different options. Um, So there's this idea of having a rigid sail, something we've been seeing in the sailing world happening a lot more often, especially if you follow things like the America's Cup, Hmm. where they're developing really cool new boats every year, is that instead of fabric sails, they're now moving into something that's more rigid, that's actually more like a plane wing than it is like a, you know, a typical sail you would think of. Because sails, uh, of course, in physics terms, perform very much like wings. So what if we make them like wings? Turns out, yeah, that's actually extremely effective to make them like wings. So there's this new ship called Ocean Bird, which is a cargo ship designed using these hard sails. And the company says that using these sails could reduce carbon dioxide emissions from the ship's journey by 90%, Oh my gosh. That's incredible. Yeah, essentially just using fossil fuels in those really difficult port environments where you can't use wind as effectively, but out on the open ocean, just completely using the wind and these sails. They're saying that it would take the ship 12 days to cross the Atlantic compared to today's eight day crossing with fossil fuel. So even though that is a 50% increase, um, it's just days we're talking about. It's not weeks. Um, They're saying that these ships could be on the ocean by 2024, which is just around the corner and that they are super effective. And of course they can be retracted. So they would be about 80 meters high on top of the boat, but they could be retracted. So they could go under bridges. They could maneuver in and out of port. It's one of the, one of the cooler solutions I think in this realm is these like rigid sails. Okay. So we're strapping airplane wings essentially to these giant cargo ships, 90% efficiency and ready by 2024. What are the other options for sail freight? There's all sorts of other options, which are um, a little bit less intensive in terms of infrastructure adoption. There's things that just look like giant kites, like literally think of a kite um, or like what a parasailer would have, like the big kind of semicircle bubble Yeah, and then strap it to a boat. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> it would fly out in front. Um, the sea wing is an example of this. And the seaweed is cool because it is uh, very automatic and autonomous. It deploys, unfurls, and operates all on its own. Wow. It collects meteorological and oceanic data, which is really cool. Um, and when the sea wing is not towing a boat, uh, it can just be stowed and folded up, be ready to be deployed the next time. So it takes up very little space, easy to stow away. So boats can go under bridges and things like that. But that one is not as effective. It's only like 20 to 35% reduction in fuel use because it's really, it's more like just helping the boat move quickly through the water. It's not really meant to completely replace its propulsion. And pardon me if this is a bad analogy, but it feels like a like a first generation kind of hybrid car. We use kind of electrical exactly. components to make the gas engine as efficient as it could possibly be. So working in concert with a traditional combustion engine. Exactly. A similar technology that is not a sail, that is just a side note, is this cool thing where they put a bunch of bubbles under the hull of the boat okay. to help reduce its drag through the water. Cool. Side note. That's not sailing, but yeah, still cool. Really cool. 
Okay. There is also a solution that looks like a proper fabric sail, and oh, that okay. is being supported by the French car manufacturer Renault. Oh, nice. um, and then there's also things that look like rotor sails. That's something that we're not really used to seeing. It's kind of, it looks just like a big cylinder uh, and it functions almost more like something you would think it would be like a wind vane or something like that, where they turn around, but there is one, let's see, being developed by Flettner sales uh, with German engineering group. And they're saying that could save a vessel 20% in fuel efficiency. If that was added, that can be retrofitted. So what's cool about a lot of these technologies is they can be retrofitted to existing ships. You don't have to build a completely new ship, but those solutions often don't take as big of a bite out of emissions. That's really cool. Thank you so much for the overview. And I'm I'm just going to put an opinion out there and just see if you agree. For the purposes of the goal we've set out for ourselves on the solution season, it seems to me that we might want to focus kind of our attention on those rigid sails, the first ones that you laid out that were kind of like the airplane wings. And I'm only saying that because it seems as though the combination of a 90, 90% reduction uh, in carbon dioxide emissions paired with the fact that the company that's developing them is saying that they could theoretically be on the water by 2024, just a sort of short-ish year and a half, two years away. That feels pretty compelling. Would you agree? Are there are there elements of the other candidates for types of sales that we might want to keep in this solution framework? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the cool things about the solution in general is that there are kind of all-in solutions like the ocean bird, which is what you're talking about. But then there are also more incremental solutions like the giant kites, the sky sails that any ship really could adopt to make an impact on their emissions today. It's not going to get them down to zero, but it is pretty significant and it's very low uh, adoption cost. And and let me ask my resident sailing expert (laughs) and, uh, you know, sail freight expert here. Are the rigid sails also able to be retrofitted to existing ships? Is that a part of the equation? The Ocean Bird itself, which is the solution we're talking about, is a whole ship that has been designed with the hard sails. There is a version of sails that actually look, they're more like blow up sails. So they're kind of combining cloth and the rigidness together, and those can be retrofitted. So within the category, there are some that can be retrofitted, but the ocean bird is, is a boat. Cool. And I, I, you know, transparency, I just want to carry that thinking forward as we think about like cost and timing implementation of this solution. Rigid sure. to me seems like such a clear winner. Like if I were going to just grade the solution based on its projected impact, obviously like 90% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions implementable by 2024, like obviously we'll get more into cost and, you know, the hard tack of, of timing, but that seems like a, that seems like a huge thing. Like when I think about the overall scale of our global economy and sort of carbon emissions, I know we've talked about this on previous episodes, like shipping makes a big, it has a big carbon footprint. You know, it has a lot of impact on obviously our environment. So that kind of projected reduction is really tantalizing and gives me some hope, you know, implementable by 2024, cost be damned, let's say like the solution itself feels like a strong, like, you know, A minus B plus, like it's not going to completely save the world all its own, but that's a, that's a huge, that chips away a gigantic portion of the, you know, what is it? billion tons of carbon dioxide that's produced by the shipping industry. What do you think? What's your take? Yeah. I mean, it's a huge problem for sure. A billion tons of carbon a year is not a small amount. And if we put that in the context of what other 
organizations are emitting, it's more than France and Germany. It's, you know, if you ranked all the countries, it would be the sixth in the world. And it, it keeps going up. It's expected to be 50% higher by 2050. So it's a ah. big problem and it's growing. Okay. So then not only is it a sort of short-term mitigation solution, but it is potentially something that could scale with the industry. That's cool. Right. All right, so I would that would push me up into that A minus range just for this category, just in terms of impact. Like if we could wave that magic wand and realistically have this thing implemented on scale, like some, you know, over 60% of the global fleet by some target date, let's say, you know, again, like the 80 month threshold that we keep coming back to, that feels like an A minus at least, you know, really feels like it could be something that pulls a lot of carbon out of the air. That's great. That feels really cool. I know we're talking about that, you know, the 90 month, 2030 kind of deadline. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to note that Dan Hubble, the Ocean Conservancy's shipping emissions campaign manager, has said that to achieve the International Maritime Organization's goal of reducing emissions, the first zero emission ships need to be on the water by 2030. So oh. he has a little bit of a longer timeline. I don't know more of what that's based on. And honestly, it's a little tricky to trust folks who are in this industry um, for a few reasons. But I just wanted to throw that out there that experts in the field do think that as long as the ships were on the water by 2030, they are projecting that that can make a huge impact as well. Wonderful. Okay. So we're, we got at least a, a strong grade, a strong grade for impact. And it seems like we're kind of bleeding the conversation over into timing. So let's talk timing, right? Like what are some factors that we should consider when it comes to timing of, let's say the, the rigid sales solution? Right. Well, I mean, Ocean Bird has said that they can have ships on the water in the next two years. Um, but of course, that's not going to be enough to replace the entire fleet of the entire world right. um, is going to take a long time to do all of that. And there's not yet a ton of incentives to encourage folks to adopt these technologies. And the way that much of the shipping world works is actually that the owner of the ship is not buying the fuel. It's the organization that's shipping something. They're, they're essentially chartering the boat and they pay for everything to get their cargo there. So they actually are paying for fuel. Ah. Um, so they have an incentive to look for boats that are more fuel efficient, but owners of boats actually don't necessarily have the same incentive to make their ships more fuel efficient because they're not even paying for the fuel. Does that sort of cost saving logic though apply on scale to business? Because I, I think as like a, a comparable analog, and again, this is a different industry and a different mode of transport, but I look at the auto industry, right? And the electrification that's happening right now. And really potentially one of the most exciting things in the EV space is like Ford's decision to price the F-150 electric or lightning, whatever, as the same price as their ICE version, their combustion engine version. And in doing so, they're basically sending out a broad message to the fleet owners that say, hey, look, like if fuel costs are always going to be going up, then there is something of a time imperative to the scale of business owners and ship owners that are, you know, moving goods around the world all the time. Like that's a huge scale business. Does does any of that logic lay in this space? Me not being a shipping magnate myself, <laughs> um, just going to make an educated guess here. Sure, sure. <laughs> I think the truth of it is that you have to have the money to save the money, which is kind of ironic. Um, if you weren't planning on making a giant capital investment into a new boat or into one of these technologies, 
it's going to be hard to justify it because it is going to be a massive expense. Even if it saves you money in the long run, you still have to come up with that money today to, to make that investment. So um, I think for sure, for some people, it will be super compelling. And in fact, we already see that tons of um, airlines or uh, excuse me, um, tons of plane manufacturers, tons of car manufacturers are putting a lot of R&D dollars into figuring out what these solutions are because they think it's a really good business opportunity. Um, and they think that there is going to be massive demand for these things and they want to be the Tesla of, of boats. Right. Um, and we have to pay attention to that. These are, you know, these are people who are really in sync with forecasting, <laughs> one of your favorite things. Um, <laughs> yes. And the the direction that the world is going and moving and they want to make the right, um, you know, forecasts and moves for their businesses. And they're making a big bet on this stuff. So I think that's super significant that people who know a lot more about this than we do are pouring a ton of money into it. And at the same time, you know, much like electric cars, like not everyone can afford to buy one. So how quickly will this actually happen? Especially when there's no single government regulatory body that's overseeing all this. Unpack that a little bit for us. Like, what do you mean by like, there's no single governing body? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, everybody in the U.S. could be mandated to switch to an electric car by 2030 by our government. We could just make that a law and then everyone in the U.S. would have to do that or face the consequences. Um, But out on the ocean, there isn't a single governing body that regulates ocean travel. There are organizations for sure, like the International Maritime Organization, but there there aren't single governments who control all of it. And so it's going to be a lot harder to create a mandate or an incentive to get people to follow rules to adopt these technologies for ocean-going vessels. I know that there's lots of international agreements that we've got when it comes to you know how we combat climate change. Is there anything relevant or related that we could bring up that might create a time imperative for this international maritime organization? So the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, is the UN's shipping agency. Their voluntary goal is to reduce the total annual greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50% by 2050, compared to 2008, while at the same time pursuing efforts to uh, phase them out entirely. But they're not doing great so far. Oh, no. I was waiting for that other shoe to drop. (laughs) Yeah, they're a little bit behind. They they dropped out of the Paris Agreement. Wait, wait, hold on. Wait, wait, they what? Yeah, they kind of said, you know, we're not going to be in the Paris Agreement. We're going to make our own, you know, target for this. And then they haven't been great at making progress toward it. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, it's not confidence building, is it? Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> it, at least it doesn't give us that specific factor of some organized group outside of the shipbuilders, ship owners, and the multinational corporations to sort of compel them all to make this transition in a timely fashion. That's definitely, this is going down on your permanent record sale freight. <laughs> That's definitely marks against the grade in the time category. Absolutely. Yeah. There are pundits, I guess, there are experts who comment on this stuff. And they've said that even the IMO's current goal which sounds pretty good, isn't ambitious enough. And it's just, it's not on the trajectory to meet climate targets. Also, shipping isn't going away, right? It's like, we have to keep working on this stuff. So it's not moving fast enough. Yes. And we have to keep working on it. (laughs) Yes. No, exactly. And, and, you know, just one factor like time should not negate the entire sort of eventual grade that we give all of sail freight. But 
timing does seem like it's not of the essence uh, when it comes to sale freight. So I mean, just hearing this sort of readout and kind of interrogating a bit, uh, is it fair to give the sort of time factor kind of a, a low C? Is it an F? Is it a D? Like, does it outright fail or are we just not moving fast enough? Yeah, I don't think it's an F. I think it just, it needs improvement. I would give okay. it a C. All right, I'll give it a C. Cool. That sounds good. And now we've been touching on cost from a number of different angles, but let's lay out cost. Like this is, it doesn't just seem like a huge investment in terms of manufacturing ships. Because again, if we go with rigid sales, we're not talking about something that can be retrofitted to like a hundred percent of ships that are out there. So we're waiting for usually like the retirement timing of a lot of ships that are in a fleet. And then the cost is going to be gigantic because we're building whole new styles of boats and there'll be like first generation ships. So there'll be, it seems like the, the hard economic cost will be very, very large. Can you kind of unpack that for us? Are there any other types of costs that we should take into, into account? Yeah, it definitely is going to cost a lot. Um, there's also a hundred year old law here in the U.S. called the Jones Act, which says all of our ships have to be built here in the U.S., that's cool in some ways. It's created a really robust shipbuilding industry here in the U.S. And when we talk about relocalization as a, a key part of solving the climate crisis. So, um, you know, takes the box for those things. What is what is relocalization for our listener? Just to um, doing things locally. Right. Yeah. So instead of buying your food, um, you know, buying your oranges from Florida, eat strawberries from New York. <laughs> okay, cool. Shopping more locally on a global scale, shall we say. Exactly. That seems like a social cost. I mean, you're going to basically start to tell people who have become used to eating last year's frozen fruits and vegetables from around the world at all times during the year that they can no longer get anything but their seasonal vegetables and fruits. That seems like a towering social cost, like a big well, change behavior, you know, behavior change. Right. And let me, let me link it back to shipping, sure. um, which is this, this law, the Jones Act says that we have to build, basically we have to build our ships um, here in the U S which just means that they're a lot more expensive. Ah, so when yes. we're talking about costs for the, for us ship owners, the cost of making this transition is going to be a lot more like 10 X more than other countries. will, simply because it's cheaper to do things in other places. So mm -hmm. in some ways that's a good thing, right? It's like, we're going to create this, um, this different shipbuilding industry. We're going to really stimulate the growth of that. It's going to be all local here in the U S that's awesome. And it's going to cost a lot more. So who's going to pay for that? And you were also mentioning a couple steps ago in the conversation that doesn't seem to be like a robust incentives environment nationally, like domestically, nationally, or internationally. Like I get, you know, as a consumer, federal and sometimes state incentives for purchasing a new EV or for making my home more efficient, et cetera, like climate mitigating and, and also just climate, you know, change fighting. I'm, I'm paid basically through my tax appetite. So there's not that sort of same level of incentives, which seems to be another factor of cost. Am I, is that correct? Or are there any other factors we should be thinking about? Yeah, there's not yet. Um, and maybe there will be, you know, maybe the, the U S will create an incentive for that here in the U S but that only solves the problem for U S ships. Yeah, yeah. Um, and similarly with something like a carbon tax, which right. might be a really effective way to disincentivize using fossil fuels, um, who would collect that tax? Um, would it, would it presumably would be the point at which the fuel is sold. And then, um, you know, ships might start 
avoiding fueling in places where fuel has that tax and go to other places. And we were basically talking about reorganizing the globalized economy, which seems like a a towering cost for the humble sail freight (laughs) cause. Or the cost of implementing something like that in a really coordinated way across many, many different places in the world, across many different people, across many different governments, so that everybody has the same carbon tax on diesel fuel and and there's no way to circumvent something like that. It's just a lot of coordination, which feels like probably a, a cost that we won't be able to pay. There's, it seems like a political cost because I think without that sort of existing international governance that can supersede, like you were saying earlier, the national registration and the national laws that each individual ship is sort of a party to, what we're talking about is like, a NAFTA, North American Free Trade Association, or like a NATO level, I know it's a military alliance, but we're talking about the creation of a new geopolitical and geoeconomic alliance, which has a gigantic political cost on top of hard dollars and cents. So if if I'm summarizing correctly, there's not much incentive for the individual virtuous shipbuilder owner or multinational to like do this on a time scale that's fast enough. Time got a kind of a middling low passing, but you need work grade. Seems like cost might also be in that C range from our high level perspective. Is that is that accurate or are there other factors we should consider that might bump costs grade back up? I think that's fair, but I think there are a few X factors that we need to talk about before we um, really get too deep in the weeds of the low grades on this. Sounds great. Let's talk about X factors. (laughs) So what are some factors that don't cleanly fit into any one of those categories? They might like blur the lines between or even be outside of impact, time, and cost. Hit me. Well, we've talked about how the impact is huge and the ability for these technologies to reduce emissions is also huge. So I think it kind of gets an A for both the size of the problem and the impact it could make. As we noted, cost and timing, not so good. We've noticed noted a couple of difficult X factors already, uh, being that there isn't this kind of overall governing body that could really set incentives. Um, a thumbs up X factor would be that we're already seeing a ton of corporate investment and development mm-hmm. from big name players, you know, from airplane manufacturers and car manufacturers. Um, and they have the business metrics and sense to say, this is a, a, a blossoming opportunity and we want to take advantage of it. So that feels really positive. Yeah. It's um, almost like a cost motivator for a different industry. Like I could see like the people who are experts in creating the wing, the fuselage, whatever, being like, oh man, we could take this process and sell it to an entirely different client. We're not just building airplanes anymore. We can sell it to an adjacent industry, make bank. Like that's a huge motivator for another industry to sort of develop that product and keep the costs as low as possible. For adoption. Yeah. A thumbs down X factor would be that the organizations that are working on these things within the shipping industry have opted out of the Paris agreement. They've created their own goals and they're not really on the trajectory to meet those targets. So yeah, huge thumbs down there, I think. And my last thumbs up X factor would be, and I just love the delicious irony of this, that Um, 40% of the products that are shipped around the world right now that use the kind of shipping we're talking about are actually fossil fuel products. So if we were living in a world where our fossil fuel product usage was, you know, 90% less, that's a massive reduction in the demand for shipping already. So, um, 
possibly if we can combine a few of those things, which is reduce demand for actual shipping along with some of these emissions reductions from different fuel sources, that could be a really massive double thumbs up. Something that we talk about to go back to relocalization is that doing things at a more local level is a big part of solving the climate crisis. So maybe even reducing demand for goods that we're getting from overseas um, is part of that demand reduction. It's not just using less fossil fuels. It's also buying less stuff. No, I love that. I love that there's this um, very logical kind of positive domino effect, let's say. The adoption creates a savings, creates a sort of reduction in fuel consumption. There's this whole like social and cultural you know, X factor of how we can create behavior changes like around the world in terms of our expectations around when goods will arrive and how locally we can source them. And honestly, like, I think we're kind of in the crucible of that social change right now, what with all of the, you know, I'm using air quotes here, supply chain problems that are happening in this globalized economy. People are right now, I think for the first time in multiple decades, like, training themselves to wait more and to expect higher prices, to expect longer wait times. And that is affecting purchase considerations. And as a sort of anti-consumerist personally, just speaking of myself, David, like I think that's a good thing. That's the that's the type of environment you need to make the lasting social change that could be a part of this really logical domino effect that you're describing. I, I do give that some potential thumbs up in the X factor. Yeah. So I think for me, all in all, sale freight gets a B minus. Um, It has massive, it's a massive problem and it could have massive impact. Um, The question mark really for me with the solution is how is is the adoption being incentivized? Um, I'm not seeing a lot of data on that, that I could present on this, but somebody is because yeah. there are, um, several massive corporations, which are making big bets on this stuff as, as an industry to be as a place to make a ton of money. So yeah. that to me speaks volumes. I know that the capitalism machine doesn't like to lose and that companies exactly. like that wouldn't be making investments like this if they didn't think that it was going to be a massive industry, um, for the future. So, um, I don't understand the incentive piece, but someone does. And that gives me uh, a lot of hope for the solution. I love that you also just created an ad hoc X factor, which was essentially capitalism's obsession with efficiency. And I, I actually have to believe that. It, it, like Even the way you phrase it up, there's folks pouring money into the development of this and see it as a profit. Yeah, that could push the timing up in grade and the cost you know, up in grade by pushing costs down in terms of creating a real, eventually a real commodity out of this technology. So yeah, you know, I came in to this episode, you did some excellent research. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I came into this episode imagining I would give this like a kind of a CC plus, but I, I could feel the B minus insofar as like, you know, shipping, as you've explained, it is such a cornerstone of how these globalized economies like deliver their goods and move them around the world. So that's not going anywhere. And if you really are talking about there are ways that we can make this more cost-effective in the long run. I do see adoption eventually coming to full timing to me. And the speed of that adoption is the one thing I think that does keep it in that low B range. So I think the B minus is fair. I'd edge between a C plus and a B minus, but I'll stick with a B minus for now. So sale free, you get a B minus according to the solar spill solution season. Yeah. 
what are you working on for next week, Javid? I'm excited ah, for yes. more solutions. Yeah, I'm actually working on an in just like a totally different direction instead of ships and hard materials. I'm kind of a personally like a policy wonk in my spare time. I love to like think about and talk about policies and how they shape our society. So next week, we're going to talk about the Fed, the actual organ. Yeah, the Fed, (laughs) the non-governmental sort of governmental organ that controls like interest rates and financial disclosures on a national level and controls a lot of the flow of like loans and sort of accreditation of companies. And I have a feeling, I have a theory that I've been researching that the Fed might actually be one of the sort of components as a viable solution to our climate crisis. Fascinating. Mm. I can't wait to hear more. Yes, I promise not to bore you all to death. Yeah, hopefully I can supply some dad jokes also. You are coming so correct. Yes, you've taken the mantle. It's now mom jokes uh, forever. (laughs) But for the solar spill solution season, I'm Tavi. I'm Susanna. And we represent SunCommon. If you're looking to go solar in New York's Hudson Valley or the capital region up around Albany or anywhere in Vermont, please give us a look at suncommon.com. And if you've got thoughts, questions, suggestions for the solar spill, you can always reach us at solarspill at suncommon.com. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you all next week.